And turn your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We're in a series, Abraham and Sarah Walking by Faith. We'll spend several weeks here in chapter 22. I'm going to read the first 12 verses this morning. Genesis 22, verse 1, this is the Word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that in an uncertain, changing world, your word stands forever. That, Father, your word is true and certain. So, Father, today as we've had the sacrament, Lord, now as we have the word, Father, use them both to give us good understanding of all the good things we have in Christ. Father, understand what love is, what faith is, what obedience is, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In terms of sheer personal drama, uh, short of the story of the cross and the resurrection, there are few stories that can match this captivating account of Abraham and Isaac here in Genesis 22. Abraham, the friend of God, has demonstrated faith in God, love for God, and obedience to God. But now he's called the ultimate test. How complete is his faith in God? How deep is his love for God? Uh, and how far will he go? in obeying the commands of God. Now let's be clear, what is obedience? In simplest terms, it is, it's doing what someone tells us to do. When it comes to obedience to God, uh, let's say this at the beginning, quoting John Blanchard here, obedience is not the essence of our relationship with God. It's not the essence. Obedience is the evidence of our relationship with God. Uh, our relationship with God is, is grace-based love. Jesus, when he said, if you love me, keep my commandments, he says obedience demonstrates that love. And as I study this passage, and uh, it's a statement of one of the pastors, great preachers of the last generation, Donald Ray Barnhouse, that stood out to me. 
He said this about Abraham. His heart held nothing back. His heart held nothing back. In that short statement, Barnhouse captures the essence of Abraham's life. Abraham's relationship with God was such that his heart held nothing back. As we go through the text this morning, we'll see evidence of this. As we watch Abraham respond to God's strange command to him. While we watch, we need to probe a little bit in our own lives. Could it be said of us, her heart held nothing back? Or his heart held nothing back? Let's go to the text and see. First, the setting, verse 1, begins after these things. And the question is, what are these things? Uh, probably encompasses all of Abraham's life since his call from God back in Genesis 12. The immediate reference would seem to be to chapter 21, where we had three episodes in, in Abraham's life. First, the long-awaited birth of the child of promise, Isaac. In obedience, Abraham and Sarah named the baby Isaac, or laughter for indeed. He brings much joy to their lives. Second, we saw Abraham send off Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, another heartbreaking scene, but again, obedience to God. And then third, we had more about the relationship between Abraham and Abimelech, the local king. As that episode concludes, we, we find Abraham planted a tree, and he worshiped God to mark the occasion. And then the chapter ends with this, and Abraham sojourned many days in the lands of the Philistines. Now, how long a period of time is that? Well, we don't know. The next dating that comes will be the beginning of chapter 23, which we know is 37 years later. Uh, most scholars guess that this is about a 15 to 20 year period. Uh, it represents a time of stability in Abraham's life. Learning what Isaiah said is true that uh, the Lord will be the stability of our times, a time of resting and strengthening of his faith, a time to enjoy Isaac growing up, Abraham in, in spending time investing his heart, in little Isaac, uh, and in his relationship with God. Now, I would suggest there's a lesson there for us. We need to take advantage of the quiet, stable times in our lives to strengthen our faith in God and our relationships with other people. Quite frankly, we don't always do that. The easier things are going for us in life, the further we sometimes tend to drift away from God. But we need to take time to call upon God to spend time with our families and the people we love. Because in our lives, we can be sure of one thing. The calm will not last forever. Uh, there's always, it seems, a storm just around the corner of time uh, and that awaits us. And if we don't take the time to strengthen our lives when things are calm, we will not stand when the storm hits. Someone has suggested that all of life's uh, we've lived to this point uh, is preparation for living today. So we don't want to waste it. It's like storing up the water in Lake Lanier in case of drought. We build up a reservoir of strength for our lives by calling on the name of the Lord, building our relationship with Him and with others. Because here's the storm. It's the testing. These three words are so ominous. God tested Abraham. You know, I've met very few people who really like tests of any kind. 
you know. Uh, they, uh, you know, they think back to being in school, and sometimes a test would produce a dry mouth and, and clammy hands. People get nervous. I remember a, a particularly nervous student in a freshman algebra in college. I suppose it was a fairly important test, at, and, um, uh, and, and this student, you could tell, he was agitated. He was worked up. And uh, just as the professor finished passing out the test, he passed up his breakfast. Uh, much to the dismay of the rest of us in a rather crowded room in the basement of Old Armstrong Hall. Um, well, here it says, God tested Abraham. That's not the King, King James says God tempted Abraham. Not it. This is a test. It's for Abraham's good. Later, Moses will write in Deuteronomy 8, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so God's question is, what will Abraham's heart hold back? And so he tests Abraham. Some of you have had hard tests in life. Maybe it's in school, but it's in life as well, I know. But this test matches or surpasses any of those in difficulty. So God calls out Abraham. Now, Abraham is a close personal friend of God, the God of the universe. The God who blessed him so much and has given him the promises and made him a wealthy man and, and given him and Sarah a child in the old age when it was humanly impossible. And so Abraham quickly responds, here I am. He's always ready to talk with God. He has no idea that God's about to test him. There's a detail that Moses lets us in on, but not Abraham. And all Abraham hears is this command that we have in verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offering there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will, shall tell you. There's no verbal response given on the part of Abraham. No explanation on the part of God. Just the command. And it's pretty clear what God means. Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. And we've all heard the story, <coughs> excuse me, before. So we do not perhaps hear it as Abraham does. Sacrifice your son, Isaac. Uh, again, Moses doesn't give us Abraham's internal response, but as, as a dad, I can tell you, uh, this is devastating. I would imagine the words sink slowly into Abraham's consciousness. I would imagine that the words shock him. It is, appears, it's certain he, he understands God correctly. Because next thing we know, it's early the next morning. And what caused me to say, well, wait a minute, what, what's Abraham thinking? Again, read the entire chapter. We're never told what Abraham's thinking. Now, whenever we're in a state of mind, we can guess. Here's a command from God. God has been good to Abraham, been a friend to him. This command goes against all the common sense. That God would command human sacrifice. After all, in 600 years, the law uh, will be explicit in forbidding it. And Abraham knows from the creation account alone that this is wrong. It's a command that goes against all human affection. God hits it on the head when he says, Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. 
And the command seems an absolute contradiction to the promises of God. Because God himself has said that Isaac's going to be the one to whom all the covenant blessings will come to the whole world. Abraham has to be confused and bewildered what God's clearly told him to do. So what's the big issue here? It's treasure. What is Abraham's greatest treasure? Is it God himself or is it God's good gifts like Isaac? Is his greatest treasure the promise or is it the promiser? Let's see the response. If we were Abraham, how would we respond? What's going on through his mind in what the Puritans would have called the long, dark night of the soul? I mean, why? Why does God command this? Why does God make me wait 25 years for a child only to take him away? Why does God make all these promises to me only to to snuff them out on, on a moment's whim? Why? Why? I can imagine those thoughts twisting slowly in Abraham's mind over and over again. You know, some people think Abraham got up early in the morning here because he's a morning person. And he may be. Some think it's because he's absolutely determined to obey God and he's almost emotionless uh, about what lies ahead. The reason I think he's up early is because he's not been to sleep. Let's not take our Bible heroes and make them something they're not. I don't think anyone here could have operated like a robot with unemotional response. I think he tossed and he turned. Perhaps he didn't even tell Sarah as she slept soundly nearby. Perhaps like Jonah, he pondered running away. Perhaps like Saul, he he considered defiance of what God says to do. Perhaps. But that's not what he does. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Jeffrey Grogan said, understanding can wait. Obedience cannot. At the crack of dawn, he's up. The question is how? How could he hold uh, his heart not hold back his son, his only son? the son whom he loves. Because clearly he gets up with every intention doing just what God told him to do. Moses, under God's inspiration, writing here, he's got great detail. We can almost hear every step that Abraham takes in the sand if we listen closely. You know, our 21st century world thinks God is impressed when we very emotionally respond to him in worship. Perhaps. But God is more impressed with obedience. And first he saddles the donkey. That's interesting. He's got a thousand servants and he saddles the donkey. Then he wakes up the two servants and his son Isaac. And then despite his age, it says he cut the wood that he'll need. And sets out for the destination God will show him in the region of Moriah. It's a three-day trip. Three long days to, to go over and over in his mind what's going to happen. Come to verse 4. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, did you catch what he said? Clearly, Abraham expects to return to this spot with Isaac. Now, the question is how? What can go on in Abraham's mind that he causes him to think that he can do that if he obeys God's command? Well, let's watch. Beginning in verse 6, let's fall to the crisis point in verse 10. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on, both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Again, the details. Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood. He bound Isaac. He reached out his hand. He took the knife. Moses builds up the tension with his words. Again, you wonder, how could Abraham pick up that knife and been so ready to kill his son, his only son, his son whom he loves? How in his mind did he balance the promise of God concerning Isaac? with the command of God to sacrifice Isaac. Why did his heart hold nothing back? It's because he had absolute faith in God, that God had a solution. You see, as he lay awake that first night, with each swing of the axe as he chopped the wood, with each step that he took for those three days to follow Barnhouse, his mind goes round and round the matter. Perhaps this is his thinking. God is not a liar. He cannot be mistaken. He told me beyond question that I would have a son, and and there that son is, right in front of me. God has said this son will be the one through whom the promises are fulfilled. Therefore, my son must live, or God will be a liar. Yet God commands that my son be put to death. Humanly speaking, this is a contradiction. But there's no contradiction with God. What's going to happen? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering of his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In that long, dark night of the soul, 2,000 years before Lazarus, 2,000 years before Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, Abraham somehow reasoned out the reality of the resurrection. 
that God, if, if he could give him son so late in life, could certainly raise that child from the dead if Abraham sacrificed him in obedience to God. Abraham fully intended to sacrifice Isaac, and he fully intended that Isaac would return with him. That's what faith, what obedience. Faith and obedience rooted in love. His heart held nothing back from God. And so he stands there ready and poised to slay his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. And then suddenly God intervenes just in the nick of time, just as the knife is poised to strike Isaac. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now, I'm quite sure God, Abraham's really relieved to hear from God at this point. And I suspect Isaac's really glad to hear from God too. Um, and the angel of the Lord, and we know that's Jesus, says, Do not lay your hand on the boy do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham sighs as tears fill his eyes. And he passes the test, if you will. He demonstrates that his faith in God and his love for God are absolute and real because his heart holds nothing back from God. Not even his son. His only son, Isaac, whom he loves. And that, friends, that's that's amazing faith on the part of Abraham. It's amazing obedience. It's amazing love that Abraham shows his friend, God. And it makes me wonder, would we pass that kind of test? I mean, what are we missing out in life because of what we uh, hold back from God? Our faith in God, our obedience to God, and our love for God. Perhaps they seem to pale in comparison with Abraham's. I mean, do we balk so often at the simple things God asks of us? What do our hearts hold back? And each of us really can only answer that question for ourselves. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And yet marriages break up. God tells us clearly to avoid sexual morality, but we think we know better. We can think we can follow the culture standards that says basically there are no standards. A little, a lot of physical contact, it's not going to tempt us. A little pornography is not going to hurt. God in Hebrews talks about the importance of worship. Forsake uh, not the assembly of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Yet attending worship is not a priority in our lives. The least little distraction takes us away. God says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Yet our hearts will hold on to to petty disagreements and differences. And they'll control our lives and our attitudes and actions towards others. God says in Deuteronomy, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Yet we do not take time for family devotions. God says in 2 Corinthians, excel in the grace of giving, but too often we act as if our money's our own to do what we want with. God said, you are my witnesses, yet we prefer to think that others have that job 
of sharing Jesus Christ. What do our hearts hold back? I suspect plenty. And whatever it is, that sin, it's sin that offends God, sin that separates us from God, sin that distorts our fellowship with God. So why should our hearts hold nothing back? It's because God's heart holds nothing back from us. This passage paints a picture for us, a picture we're going to look at in far greater detail next week. Uh, 2,000 years later, a similar scene repeats itself. The father sacrifices his son, only this time there's no voice from heaven that says stop. These are the words, instead the words of the son are spoken, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his son whom he loved. And that son died on the cross and took the penalty we deserve. Whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish because of our sin, but have everlasting life. Maybe the most encouraging reminder I give you right now is is Paul's explanation in Romans 8, beginning with verse 31. It describes how God's heart holds nothing back. And we catch a glimpse, just a glimpse of that amazing love. What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, we're able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is amazing love. So what about us? We need to consider carefully, what is our heart holding back? I've suggested some possibilities. There are certainly others. And really, each of us only knows our own hearts. Uh, whatever it is today, I would urge you, do not hold it back from God any longer. We need to demonstrate that we have faith in God and are obedient to God and that we love God by turning away, letting go of whatever it is, and cling to the forgiveness that comes to us through Jesus Christ. God's grace is always sufficient. This kind of self-examination this week, it's tremendous preparation for us as we come to the Lord's table together next Sunday. Let me say, if you're here right now and, and, uh, and you're, you're not yet a believer, then what you're holding back on is faith in Jesus Christ. 
Maybe you're coming to the point where you're ready to turn from your sin and trust Christ for salvation. If that's the case, I would urge you to, to pray when we respond to God's word in a moment. Ask God to forgive you based on the forgiveness offered in Christ. But if you're still thinking about this, I encourage you to read this story every day this week. Come back next Sunday to hear the conclusion of it. Let's go back to where we started today. Realistically, the only reason our hearts will ever hold nothing back from God is that God's heart holds nothing back from us. We love Him because He first loved us. I would urge us now as we pray, as we sing the closing hymn, as we receive the benediction, as we go out, as we go to our business in the coming week, think about His love. Think about His goodness. Think about His grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Indeed, His heart held nothing back. Not even His Son, His only Son, whom He loves. Think about that. Father, we've sung about your amazing love. We've sung that, about how deep your love is. Father, we've talked about your faithfulness to your covenant promises, that Christ would come, that he would come and die for us. We thank you, Father, that you did not hold anything back from us. So, Lord, as we respond to your word today, we, we pray that Abraham would be an example to us of a heart that holds nothing back as well. And that, Father, we would look at our own lives, Lord, and whatever, whatever their sin there is, Father, that we're struggling with, that we're battling with. Father, we just pray that you would help us to, to turn from that sin, to repent of it, Father, to ask your forgiveness, Lord, and that you give us strength, Lord, to hold nothing back. Lord, we know that the essence of a relationship with you is not obedience. But Father, we know that when we obey, it does demonstrate love. It's evidence. But Father, remind us, it's about your grace. We love you because you first loved us. We're responding to your love. So Father, in response to your great love, may our hearts hold nothing back. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.